0: Today we are back in the book of Mark. We took a couple of weeks off, uh, off from Mark rather, because we had the Lord's Supper one week and then Brother Mark Goldman preached last week on the eternality of God. And I'm thankful to Mark for doing that, by the way. Thank you, Mark. Um, It was helpful to me to look at the eternality of God and how it touches our lives in A host of practical ways. It's not just a theological slash academic exercise to talk about the eternality of God. It touches our lives. For instance, he mentioned several things. Since God is eternal, I'm kind of summarizing some of the ones he, he mentioned. Since God is eternal, that means the benefits that are ours through the life, death, and resurrection and intercession of Christ the benefits never end. We are Christ's and Christ is ours and he's eternally ours because he himself is eternal. And whatever glorious attribute you want to talk about from scripture, that attribute will never change or diminish in its glory because God is eternally unchangeable. So thank you, Mark, for bringing that to us. It was helpful last week. So I trust you've already turned to the passage, Mark 2. If you you haven't, go ahead and open there. Chapter 2, verse 13, and we're going to focus this morning on verses 13 to 17. And the message, as you see there, is simply titled, The Great Physician. You'll see why in a few minutes. Let's read it. Mark 2, 13 to 17. The Bible says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. What is the main point of this passage? That's important to ask yourself anytime you read the Bible. Uh, For this passage... To sum up the main point, I'm going to borrow from a hymn that you guys know very well. It's the fourth verse of the hymn entitled, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. I believe we sang that hymn just a few weeks ago. But here's the main point of the passage in the words of that songwriter. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. There's the point of this passage. And if we ever get over that truth, we're in trouble. We're in spiritual trouble. Once we stop marveling at the fact that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to save sinners, once we lose the marvel over that, we have lost the essence of worship we'll have lost the joy of our salvation. And we'll end up turning the gospel into something that is isn't all that impressive, isn't all that exciting to anyone, and thus not worth our time or effort to share with anyone. That's what happens when we lose our awe over what God has done. So I encourage you today, as we look at Jesus' words and his actions here in Mark 2, 13 to 17. Just try to take in afresh what kind of Savior we have, okay? He's not aloof from us, way off, not interested. He's not afraid or unwilling or reluctant to put himself among sinners, Sinners like you and me, we're the type of people he came for. Amen? So let's look at this surprising, some might even say scandalous, grace of God in Christ displayed here in this passage. Let's look at it this way. Let's just examine... Uh, three different people or groups of people that we see here. And that'll kind of guide us through the truth of the passage, okay? So first, we see a tax collector welcomed. A tax collector welcomed. Who was this guy? Well, our text says it was a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And if you read the parallel account in the gospel of Matthew, it becomes clear that the man that this passage is talking about is the man that's most widely known as Matthew himself. Listen to Matthew 9.9 9 and how closely it correlates with the passage today. Matthew 9, nine: as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And even later on in the book of Mark, our book that we're studying here, when he lists out the names of the 12 apostles, he doesn't call this man Levi anymore. He calls him Matthew. So apparently the the name Levi was the name he went by at one time, but when he followed Jesus, he was then known as Matthew. And Matthew means gift of God. And that meaning would be true in multiple ways in his life so let's talk about Matthew for a second Matthew was a tax collector and we might need to understand a little bit about tax collectors in that day if we're not familiar tax collectors were in that day hated by the Jewish people we could talk about the IRS of our day and how we uh you know How we all just love paying all the taxes that we have to pay, right? But the tax collecting situation in Jesus' day was very different. It was worse than that. Uh, Rome ruled over the Jewish people at this time, and the Jewish people did not care for Rome, to say it politely, they the Romans did not share their customs, they did not share their traditions, they didn't care about them at all. The Romans did not serve the one true God, Yahweh. They definitely didn't care about God's law if they didn't even worship the one true God. They had their pantheon of gods, just tons of gods. So the Jews basically had to be they had to endure being ruled and dominated by Gentile idolaters with all their false gods who looked down on them all the time and basically treated them like trash. And when it came to taxes, the Roman Empire would actually auction off the privilege of being one of their tax collectors. So various entrepreneurs would bid to get the job and whoever won the bid would have the right to collect the taxes in that area and Rome didn't care if the person was honest or not. They didn't care about any of that as long as Rome got their money. And so what you end up with is tax collectors who would charge people whatever they wanted way above what Rome required and then When the time came, they would give Rome the amount that was agreed on and then the tax collector would just pocket the rest and become a wealthy person. And nobody could do very much about it because they had Rome, the power of Rome behind them. Now that situation is bad enough, but then when a fellow Jew had the audacity become one of Rome's tax collectors that was heinous to them they were viewed as a traitor siding with Rome against their own people becoming rich at their own people's expense so just think about that as some background because Matthew was that guy And Jesus doesn't come by and spit on Matthew's tax booth like probably a lot of people did. He comes by one day and he says, follow me. And Matthew probably would have been the last person people would have expected Jesus to call as a disciple. But Jesus doesn't operate by our standards, does he? His ways are not our ways. Thank God. Now, do you remember back in chapter 1 where Jesus reached out and touched the leper and healed him? No one touched lepers. That was unthinkable. Well, this is unthinkable too because we might could call Matthew a social leper. (laughs) That's what he was. No Jewish person would have wanted anything to do with him Again, he was a traitor. He was siding with the pagans against God's people, against his own heritage, against his own religion. And he would not have had many Jewish friends, if any. All of his friends were other tax collectors and sinners, as we see. And what we're meant to see here, I think, in the call of Matthew is the grace of God in choosing people who might be considered the worst of society. You know, back when Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John, in the passage there in the first chapter that talks about that, they aren't presented as particularly wicked people or anything from a human perspective. What they are is lowly people. They're fishermen, right? Nobodies. And we can see ourselves in that, can't we? Consider your calling, brothers. 1 Corinthians 1.26. Not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth, but God chose you. And he did it to shame the wise and the strong and to demonstrate that no human being has any right to boast in God's presence because it's all to be attributed to his grace. He he chooses nobodies. But now, in this passage, not only do we see Jesus choosing lowly people, but we see Jesus choosing very sinful people. Do you see yourself in Matthew now? Like you saw yourself in, perhaps a little bit of yourself in Peter and Andrew and James and John in that I'm a nobody just like they were but now do we see ourselves in Matthew I wonder what we let's just get real for a second shall we <laughs> I wonder what we think of ourselves in the recesses of our minds and hearts Do we think pretty highly Of ourselves, or do we have a humble, low view of ourselves? Listen to what the reformer John Calvin said about the call of Matthew. He said this it's a little small on the screen. I just put it up there in case someone could see it well. He says, In the choice of Matthew out of that place, not only to be admitted into the family of Christ, but even to be called to the office of apostle, we have a striking instance of the grace of God. It was the intention of Christ to choose simple and ignorant persons to that rank in order to cast down the wisdom of the world, but this publican, that's another word for tax collector, but this publican who followed an occupation little esteemed and involved in many abuses, was selected for additional reasons, that he might be an example of Christ's undeserved goodness and might show in his person that the calling of all of us depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on his pure kindness. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. A verse that comes to mind is 1 Timothy 1. This is coming probably from one of the most godly men who ever lived. Listen to what he said. This is a godly man who said this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners... Of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason. He's about to tell us why God saved him. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let me just summarize it this way. Paul said he was the worst sinner there was. And the reason God saved him was to prove that if God can save him, he can and will save anybody. That's what he's saying in that verse. In other words, he is a trophy of God's grace. If God can save religious terrorists like Paul, which is what he was, basically, going around throwing Christians in jail, if he will save a man like that and use him so mightily, Christ will save anyone. And Matthew serves as yet another example of that. Just think about that. Jesus chooses to the office of apostle a man who is a tax collector. Others would have said, "No, no, no, Jesus, don't, don't bother with him. He's got a bad reputation. He's done terrible things. He'll bring his bad reputation on you, Jesus." But Jesus says, "No, he's exactly the kind I came to save." Matthew, just another trophy of God's grace. And he goes on to write the first gospel in our New Testament. The book of Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew. And it contains all these detailed accounts of Jesus' teaching. Of his events of Jesus' life. And I know we're not studying the gospel of Matthew right now. But aren't you thankful for the book of Matthew? If you've read that, you'll see. God takes... We don't know all the details about how this worked out, but I can see how it would work out this way. God takes Matthew's detail-oriented mind that made him good with numbers and tax collecting and so forth, and God turns it for his own glory, and he writes this detailed account of the life of Christ. And God's still getting glory through those Holy Spirit-inspired words of this former tax collector (laughs) named Matthew. Amazing. And Matthew, I love this, even in his own account, in the book of Matthew, he refers to himself as Matthew the tax collector. Matthew 10.3. He didn't shy away from that, didn't shy away from his past, try to make himself look respectable. As he's writing, he's thinking, people may read this 500 years from now. Do I really want them to know I was a tax collector? Let's leave that part out. doesn't do it I'm Matthew the tax collector who Jesus saved what a story of grace isn't it another aspect of this seeing Matthew's call let this be an encouragement to you have you been praying for somebody a loved one to come to the Lord for a very long time And you don't see anything changing or happening. Is there anybody that's been doing that? Show of hands. Remember this. It's the words of J.C. Ryle. I'll let him remind us all. He said this. We ought never to despair entirely of anyone's salvation. When we read this passage of scripture. He who called Matthew still lives and still works. No sin-sick soul is too gone for him. It is his glory to heal and restore to life the most desperate cases. For unfailing skill, for unwearied tenderness, for long experience of man's spiritual ailments, the great physician of souls stands alone. There is none like him. Amen. Keep bringing their names before your Father. He hears. And He's still saving people for His glory. And He's even still saving people out of the most unexpected situations, even when it looks dire to you and and me. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, says Isaiah 59. Keep crying out to the Lord on their behalf. They may one day yet be a Matthew trophy of God's grace now whether or not it was immediately after Jesus called him or sometime down the road we don't know the scripture doesn't tell us but Matthew throws essentially a dinner party at his house and he invites all of his friends over to meet Jesus but there were some who were displeased shall we say with the situation and that brings us to a second group of people we should look at this morning let's think about these people the scribes and the Pharisees rejected what do these scribes and Pharisees do in this passage what is their stance their posture regarding what Jesus is doing at this dinner well by their estimation by their classification, Jesus is doing the unthinkable. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. People who the Pharisees thought were just scum, basically. People whom they wouldn't dare think of getting close to. Surely, they must have thought, surely other people... Any respectable person, at least, would keep their distance from these kinds of people, right? These were dirty people to them. People who would taint their ceremonial cleanliness just by being around them. Now, I asked earlier if we saw ourselves in the lowliness of the fishermen, and I asked you if you saw yourself in the sinfulness of Matthew. Now I ask you, does anybody see themselves in the self-righteous Pharisees? Mm. When we think about that, I can't help but turn my thoughts to when Jesus told this story in Luke chapter 18. Where he tells a story of a tax collector and a Pharisee who are praying. You remember this? And the Pharisee prays something like, I'm paraphrasing, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and I am not like this tax collector. Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. The self-righteousness is thick, isn't it? But the tax collector, it says, he stood a good ways off from the temple. And it says he wouldn't so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat on his chest. And he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said only one of those men went home justified that day, right with God. And it wasn't the Pharisee. It was the repentant tax collector. God rejects self-righteous people. He rejects self-sufficient people. But Isaiah 57 says he makes his home with the lowly and the contrite. Those who are broken over their sin. And what does James 4 and 1 Peter 5 say? God opposes the proud. Opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. Now I have to remind us. We live in America I didn't have to remind you of that, did I? I'm simply pointing that out to say that we probably have a tendency, maybe more than any other people in the world, to have a self-sufficient, independent attitude. We're very prosperous compared to other nations, And that prosperity just tempts us to think, ah, we can handle it on our own. We've got enough resources to make it through this. But I'm telling you, that attitude will get us nowhere with God. It's not the self-sufficient or the self-righteous that Jesus came for. He opposes people like that. He opposes the proud, but... (laughs) Who does he embrace with his grace? Sinners. That's amazing. He gives grace to the humble. So if you see yourself in the self-righteous Pharisees cry out to God in repentance and forgive that sin too. Lastly, let's consider the best person from this scene and we'll notice his teaching here, we'll call this point the great physician at his work. So we looked at Matthew, we've looked at the Pharisees, now let's look at Jesus. When Jesus hears that these Pharisees are asking these questions about why he's spending so much time with people like this, he responds to them by saying in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a doctor. The people who need a doctor are the people who are sick. Just imagine a little scenario with me for a second. Imagine that you're a sick patient. You go into the emergency room to receive some care, find out what's going on, and you get back to the triage area, and the nurse says, how can we help you today? And you respond with you know, well, I've got severe abdominal pain, I've got a fever, I've got this weird rash on my skin, and I'm vomiting. And imagine that the nurse says, oh my goodness, I hate to hear that, but I've got bad news for you. We don't actually see sick people here. The doctors only like to see patients that are well. You know, they don't really want to taint themselves or get catch something themselves, you know? They don't want to risk getting sick. They've got work to do. So they'd like for you to try to get well on your own and then come back at a later date when you feel a little bit better, then they'll look at you, okay? Have a nice day. You'd immediately think, what planet am I on? <laughs> what is going on here? Is this not where sick people are supposed to be able to go to receive care? That situation makes... No sense, right? But what seems obvious to us in the physical realm, that physicians actually treat sick people actually regularly gets confused in the spiritual realm, unfortunately, because we as fallen human beings, we tend to think that we've got to clean ourselves up before we can come to God. We've got to clean ourselves up so that he will accept us. In fact, look at pretty much any man-made religion. And that is the basis of it. You work your way by good things, by good works. You work your way into God's approval. That is the vast majority of worldwide religion. God, whoever that is in said religion, he must have like a list of of good things he wants you to do, list of bad things he doesn't want you to do, and then one day when you meet him, he's going to go down the list and say, "Check, check, check. Uh-oh. You fell short in this area. I'm really sorry you almost made it to heaven, but not and what that is is a made-up God of our fallen imagination that God doesn't exist and yet that imaginary God is the God of most religions that have ever existed this list checker God who doesn't actually do anything to help sinners we do everything and he just checks us off but here's what's so glorious about the true God, the God that actually exists in reality, the one who's revealed himself in Scripture, is that he's actually done something about our condition. And the Bible tells us all about it. He, he doesn't leave it up to us to remake ourselves, reform ourselves, uh, He doesn't expect us to do that and make ourselves something acceptable to him. He's taken the initiative to come to us. He actually became one of us, he became our Redeemer. This is glorious news. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became a human being, except for a little different than us, he was without sin. Praise God he was. Praise God. And he went to the cross to bear all the sins that would have kept us out of heaven. And for every repentant sinner who will come to him in faith, he pays for every last sin to the very end of the list. And his work is finished. There is nothing left to pay for those people There's nothing left to be purged of after death. And our passage just records some of the most glorious words that he ever said. When you think about it, he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You don't have to be righteous to come to God. Matter of fact, there's no one righteous. Says Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's music to a sinner's ears, isn't it? It's not music if you think yourself to be anything other than a sinner. I really have no good news for anybody who doesn't think they're a sinner. God doesn't have any good news for those people. And as I said, if we're thinking biblically, there is none righteous. We're self-deceived in that, but... There are those who think they are righteous, and therein lies the problem. People say, I'm, have you heard anybody ever say, I'm too much of a sinner to be saved? They think, them, they think themselves to be so unworthy. I sure like that problem a lot better than this one. The other extreme is you can be too good to be saved. What I mean is you can be too good in your own estimation. I'd like to read you something from Charles Spurgeon. When he preached on that passage from Luke 18 with the the tax collector and the Pharisee praying, he preached his sermon on July 17th, 1881. Let me read this quote to you. He's talking about being too good to be saved. The reason this is tied in, if I'm too far off of what you think the main point is, I'm tying this back to Jesus came for sinners. And unless you're a sinner, this isn't good news. You're too good for the gospel then. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. I am always preaching to sinners, and I have had the great delight of seeing many, many sinners taken in the gospel net and saved. Now I want to talk to those who are scarcely sinners, except that, by way of compliment, they acknowledge that they are sinners. Yes, they say, we are all sinners. And if they go to church, they say, Lord, have mercy on us, miserable sinners. Yet all the while, they neither look miserable, nor are they really conscious that they are sinners in the sight of God and already under condemnation. I want to speak especially to this class of people. It is a great pity that it should be so. Yet there are many people who in their own estimation are much too good to be saved, too good ever to be justified, too good ever to go to heaven. There may be some such people here. He goes on to say, there is one way of salvation for all who come to God and that is by faith." In Jesus Christ, and if you will not walk in this narrow way, if you are too good to travel along this pilgrim path, you shall perish in your accursed self-righteousness. Accursed indeed it is, for it has shut multitudes out of all hope for mercy because they have thought themselves too good to be saved. It's hard to imagine someone thinking that way until you catch yourself being so prideful that you're like, I can't believe I just thought that. (laughs) Lord, help us not to be too good to be saved. It is the greatest... Go back to point three there. It's the greatest discovery in the life of any man or woman or boy or girl. The greatest discovery they can ever make is when they discover by God's grace, one, that they are a great sinner. And then two, that Christ is a great savior of sinners. I hope... Each and every one of you here and hearing me today has discovered that or will discover that. And if if not, I'm telling you now, hear it from Jesus' lips in this passage. He's come to save sinners. Do you fit that description? Then come to Him and you'll find a Savior. Amen. Now, one final challenge for us as Christians here today for the Christians that are here in this room or anybody hearing me that's a Christian. We we glory in what God has done for sinners, and we rightly glory in that. And we glory in the truth that he speaks here, how he's the great physician. But I wonder, just as one final challenge, I wonder if we as Christians follow in his footsteps in what he does here. Not just what he says, but what he does. I notice that he makes contact with sinners and spends time with them. He talks with them. He eats with them. He doesn't enter into sin with them, but he's around them. He talks with them. He seeks their good. And I wonder if any of us have maybe drifted away from that example in some way. You know, we're, we're involved in church, which is wonderful. We have a good set of Christian friends, which is also wonderful. We listen to Christian radio. We read good Christian books. Whatever the case, you go down the list. But how much effort are we putting into developing relationships and even friendships with non-Christians? How are we doing in that area? One man said... Commenting on this passage, Jesus makes it clear that one cannot win people with whom one is not willing to eat. What if we decided that we're going to intentionally form friendships with unbelievers? What if we decided that we would not limit all our time to Christian circles only, but we saw to it that we spent some quality time with people who are outside the family of God so we can evangelize. Spending time with people who have not yet come to see the beauty of Christ as their Savior. I wonder, I wonder what God would do through that type of people. They would look strikingly similar to how Jesus looks in this passage as he reclines at table eating with tax collectors and sinners. That challenges me. I hope it challenges you somewhat. The church, um, whether we're talking about Jackson Bible Church or whether we're talking about the worldwide church as a whole, it's not going to be built primarily through uh, various programs and elaborate strategies It's going to be built at the grassroots level, so to speak, simply by God's people taking their calling seriously and evangelizing the lost people around them. That's how God builds his church. I wish I could write a church growth book because it would just have one page on it. Preach the gospel to every creature. (laughs) You could have a you know you go into the bookstore even the Christian if there is a such thing as a Christian bookstore now you can go in there and there's church growth books and there's all kinds of strategies and just all kinds of stuff and fluff The way God builds his church is just his people sharing the gospel and he'll bring people in The Holy Spirit will save as he sees fit It's just our job to carry the message Right? And what will, I'm getting ready to close, what will fuel the desire for all of that is coming to grips with the kindness and the grace of God to come after you when you didn't want anything to do with him. You weren't looking for him, he came to you. And when we come to grips with that, and how he was under no obligation to do so, that will fuel our desire to tell other people about this God, this kind, glorious, merciful, gracious God who seeks out sinners. So let's just meditate more and more on the goodness and the grace and the love of God in Christ, and I guarantee you that will fuel our desire to get the message out. You agree? My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life he gave. There's the fuel, realizing it was me. Let's ask God for his help as we carry this message as far and as often as we can. Let's pray. Lord, the words of your Son, Jesus, are sweet to our ears this morning. He came for sinners like us. Lord, would you just produce in us a fire in our bones to get this beautiful word out to more people? Lord, would you put some courage in us, some steel in our bones? Give us great confidence in the gospel to where we would be content and satisfied with just being a faithful messenger of your gospel and leaving all the supernatural work inside a human heart to you. Work through us, Lord, your people, and help us to be obedient in this. Thank you for this passage today. Lord, we often see ourselves as just lowly nobodies, and yet you saved us. Lord, we see ourselves also as sinners, like, the, like Matthew the tax collector, and yet you still saved us. And we even see ourselves sometimes like the self-righteous Pharisees. And yet, Lord, you Forgive Pharisees even when they come to you and repent. Thank you for showing these things to us in your word. May we be forever shaped by it and sanctified and edified by it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.